Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. This week, no topic whatsoever. We're going freeform. Uh, there's quite a lot of good stuff out, isn't there? I, I'm sorry, I'm just scared by the implications, the, the wide open vista, the, the opportunity to free associate about comics and bullshit. Yes, that's literally never happened before. I'm Dave Congrey. This is Roger Hart. We're going to be talking shit. Quite a lot of it. But there's a ton of good new stuff out. Okay, okay, there really is. So I was travelling recently and I just wanted to stock up and ended up with just so many singles and odds and ends. And then I was was looking at the the image new releases uh, thing this morning. And you have to scroll, scroll forward a couple of weeks before you get to a week without a release I want to buy. There is an absolute ton of stuff. So... Part of that is that um, Brandon Graham's Arclight and Island series, the big sort of tie-in together... Yeah, is, does, it, does it have a franchise name? Is there a thing? There's a couple of them. So Arclight is part of an eight-part sci-fi fantasy world, mm. and Island is an anthology of creators that Brandon Graham likes. Right, right, right. So, oh, sorry, so, so is Arclight the thing? Arclight's the first one of the big sci-fi fantasy mm. world, and it's a um, really beautifully illustrated... Um, tale of a knight, a female knight who is serving someone who she just refers to as her lady who seems to have been turned into some sort of wood creature Mm. Um, not unlike one of those groups you might have seen in that cinema and um, it's essentially, the first issue is just set up um, but the art by Marion Churchland really is beautiful and it's intriguing enough with um its portrayal of sort of a slightly hyper-aggressive knightly culture of, you know, knights in clubs uh, threatening each other. Um, It's interesting. I liked it. I liked it more than The Spire, which I didn't think I was going to. I haven't read that yet. I really want to. The Spire is... The tannin is softening as this stays open. I think it's actually going to be all right. I'm so glad the wine's working out. Uh, the Spire is Cy Spurrier and Jeff Stokely, who did Six Gun Gorilla together, yes. which is why I was sort of full of big expectations for it. And there's a lot of world building in the first issue. Um, it's a huge city, spire-shaped city, worst off at the bottom, best off at the top. Um, and there is a sort of mutant underclass. Uh, and the main character that we... There's always a mutant on the class. There is, yes. Yeah. Well, you grew up in the northeast, so you would have a very keen eye on that. You can edit the drum sting in later. I can't be bothered. So, and, and it focuses on this sort of um, sort of bounty hunter-ish head of the, head of the guard, or um, one of the main guard's people, um, Shah, and her attempts to capture, kill bad guys Hmm. and so far not much has happened so far it's like so far there isn't that weird or metatextual thing there's there's a lot of competent world building a lot of Hmm. sort of Hmm. interesting um, world building that could potentially go somewhere good but it just it hasn't grabbed me uh, grabbed me by the collar yet and drawn me in which is what I was hoping for given that I loved Six Gun Gorilla so very much Um, but that's not to say it's not worth reading. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be interesting. So, you just dive straight in. How about you? Uh, you tell our tender listeners what else you've been reading. 
I read uh, We Stand on Guard, which is the new uh, Brian K. Vaughan uh, comic. And it's about a... Sorry, Brian, Brian K. Vaughan, Steve Scrooge, and Matt Hollingsworth. Mm. Um, it is about... A war has broken out between the US and Canada. It's implied that there was an attack on the Pentagon that was uh, attributed to Canada and was probably a false flag operation mm. because... Uh, the US wanted Canadian water rights and, and one basically wanted to attack. So it then cuts into the future where you have Canadian freedom fighters living in the woods of Ontario um, <laughs> and the Americans sending in a variety of very large robots to fight them. Right. It's interesting. Again, so kind of a snowy robot Vietnam. This is, um, I mean, it's basically Red Dawn but with Canadians and giant robots uh, and snow uh, and grappling hooks and French. I think you probably know whether you like it or not from that description. It looks like a better drawn version of Preacher. The art, so I'm not really hugely familiar with Steve's Grace, but it's very similar to Derek Robertson in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, he did uh, he's been out of comics for a while he did a bunch of stuff in the 90s so he did um, Young Blood and a few other bits for Image um, I liked it I'll probably wait for the trade before reading any more but certainly not bad it doesn't sound like something I'll be picking up um, probably worth sort of looking at in a sale or something mm. it's there's not enough done with uh, the characters in the first one to make me know whether I'm desperate to continue right right uh, even though it is a slightly slightly longer one than normal. Um, I've been reading Captara. Oh, I love Captara. Isn't it just storming nonsense? It is absolute nonsense. So it's Chip Zdarsky and... Who's the artist again? Oh gosh, I can't remember. Uh, it is Chip Zdarsky and Kagan McLeod. That's almost possibly McClure. I don't know how he wants to do that particular bit of. Mm. I think he's going to say McLeod because that's like the Highlander. Mm. Um, what? It, so essentially, a coward falls through a wormhole and winds up in the worst episode of He-Man of all time. And it's just crazy. It keeps that kind of sci-fiized fantasy that was all over eighties cartoons. It really nails, even down to the colour palette. Um, and Lampoon's kind of lovingly, but just filled with horrible little shits. Everyone's a fucking idiot, like with possibly two exceptions. There's a there's a ageing and crinkly version of He-Man called Dartor, mm. who insists that really the only way to do anything is to shoot people with darts out of a bamboo thing. There's, um, there are... Basically, men's rights activist Smurfs. So in this episode, our, our heroes are, capt are captured by the Glomps, these horrifying little green pricks, who are, yeah, just subreddit Smurfs. That one is, that one is crumping. That one right there, he is crumping. He's throwing the fuck down. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. And they, they wander around with their hands in their trousers, spouting racist abuse, and have been cast out of the city for being awful little assholes and bleat on about free speech, and it's just delightful. And incredibly silly. They are just these 
rotten, repressed Gamergate little pricks. It's brilliant. There's also uh, um, Melvon the Wizard. Melvon is broadly naked and... Melvon has a loincloth made out of his beard wrapped around him. Yeah, he's basically a bizarrely buff, fighty Gandalf. It's weird. He's just terrifying. Just horrible. And he kills a lot of dudes. <laughs> yeah, there are cat tanks. So they ride in, in tanks made of giant cats. It's, it's really hard to explain without sounding like you dropped a whole bag of drugs. Which I think is kind of the effect. I mean, it's basically... The plot could have been written by someone taking a bunch of action figures from the 80s and just yelling for a while. I love the motivational orb. The motivational orb is a thing that floats around and tells you, you know, throws out pithy little sayings to improve your outlook. It's great. Also... One of the possible bad guys is called Skullthor. One of... So... There's a point at which the main character realises he's going to have to go on a heroic quest. quest. He's very... He doesn't want to. He wants to have a nice time in his new apartment. But they've given him a helper robot that insists on trying to wank him off so he can sleep better. Hmm. Yeah, he's got a handsy helper droid. He goes... He goes on a quest, he puts on a cloak and marches out to go on a quest because he doesn't want to get tossed off by a confusing robot. Haven't we all been there? Uh, only you went to boarding school. <laughs> Camtara's brilliant. Um, it's very, 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 very stupid. I was going to wait for the trade, and I turned out to be enjoying it so much that I'm picking up the singles, despite the fact that, right... Like, oh, it's just the best disposable thing. It's very, very silly. On the opposite end of the scale, I think we both just read um, the first volume of Witches. Ah... Uh, Nothing will ever be okay again. Which is as good old-fashioned horror? It's... There's something really fucking nasty in the woods, and... Yeah. Yeah. And... It's got that sort of folk horror vibe of who is, who isn't in on this. Mm. Who is and isn't working who for the things trust? in the woods. Not unlike Shadows of Salamanca, actually. I, um, the whole... The woodland surrounds the town. Perhaps every town, there are things in there the thing that you're dealing with may or may not have become folk religion to the point that everyone around you may or may not be involved. That's good. And, I mean, I've always thought Scott Snyder is alright. Like, I thought American Vampire was quite good. I didn't really like his stuff on Batman. But the back matter for the first couple of interviews, um, the, the, the issues, he uses to talk about his inspiration and kind of the feelings of, as a child, being scared in the woodland. And, Actually, childhood experience is something it captures reasonably well, as is childhood fear, and its relationship to, kind of dialectic relationship with the things that you're afraid of as an adult. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I don't know how realistic the, some of the attitudinal stuff there is that to do with, like, uh, the, the kid, Sailor, and her dad, whose name I can't remember. Um, there's a certain set of things she's afraid of, but it's significantly also about what he's afraid of, and how much of it does and doesn't turn out to be real. He's a, he's a writer of children's stories. Um, th- there's this whole thing going on in, that I've not really picked through about... Well, it, the, the aliens thing of no real monsters anyway. 
you know, it, people who ought to be able to be in charge of their kind of fears and fantasies um, becoming stuck in something far worse than or more complex than those fears and fantasies. Sorry, I'm not making any sense there. Yes, it's a dramatic irony thing in that the guy who spins the slightly Harry Potter haunted fairground stories finds himself caught in a deeply grubby horror story around his own child. Um, what is and is not real in perceptual stuff and, and um, fiction and narrative creation. Um, oh, I don't know. It, there's, there's a lot going on there when you, when you start to tease at it. There is. And it's horrible. It's probably horrible. Like the the things the people do, and there's a there's a real gut punch at the end. Um, it's issue seven, I think, is the conclusion of the first arc. Yes. And you think, I thought at least, that the first arc is is going to be the main story, and it's, it's this family who moved to a new town where all there's all this horrible shit, and it, the horrible shit turns out to be semi related to some of the stuff they're running away from. Fairly standard. Fairly well done. And. It becomes obvious that the first arc... I mean, it is a rich story, but it could also be set up for something much, much bigger. By the end of it, some of the plot has collapsed down to the point where we're off to do something else, and oh my god. It's... Yeah, I mean, it could go... One of the things I liked is that the the setup now, it, there's just enough of a broader world and an ongoing struggle that they could go off in myriad different ways from this point. It doesn't need to follow from the same point. Um, you get the impression that this could be anywhere. And, yes, it does a really good job of folding out from anyone in the town could be on it to this could be a genuinely alarming global phenomena. There is a huge problem with trust by the end of it. Trust is completely undermined. Just It's, it's creepy to the point where if someone sidled up near to me and hissed pledged his pledge, I would shit myself. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's genuinely scary, which is not often the case with horror comics. Uh, no, and it doesn't rely on page turn jumps. No, There's, there are some. Slow, but it's mostly, slow mostly masterless. Jock's art is genuinely great for it. Um, and again, Matt Hollingsworth on colours. The digital spatter is. I raved about it. There's a short review of issue one on the site. I raved about it, but with the slight reservation that I wanted if it would be gimmicky, and it's not. It's. There's, um, there's a sort of brief introduction in the back matter as to how it's done, it's actual sort of proper paint splatter on board that's then sort of put as a Photoshop layer that mm. burns down over the existing stuff. It's good and it just, um, there's a lot of it in Supreme Blue Rose as well, there are just sort of patterns and paint over things. And it, there's an otherworldliness that you get from that when yeah, colour and tone intention. doesn't quite, it doesn't align with sort of straightforward colouring. There's a thing you can do in, in film, I don't really understand this well, but like, sort of something that some horror films make really good use of light, just of manipulating lighting and creating pressure by moving it around, um, and kind of camera focus and constricted attention to give you kind of dramatic ironies and advantages and things like that. Uh, the dumb example is Blair Witch, but you know, yeah, there are far more elegant versions of that. And um, the use of the swirling distortions and colour palette kind of feels like it gets you some of that mileage. It's, it creates feelings of oppression, pressure and threat. And then sometimes expansion in quite a strong way. And one, of the, one of the best examples of that is actually in a flashback where there's no perceptible threat. Um, but it's just an incredibly confined environment in children's play area. 
there's a huge sort of tunnel system and mm. suddenly light light is cut off very quickly you yeah. can't see around the corners mm. in these things and it's genuinely scary despite being presented at a point where there's no obvious threat witches is good people should read witches yeah. the spread in the first issue with the deer vomiting blood and the stuff in the barrow at the end and just no I I fucking love witches witches is and the trade will be out soon so trade's out now oh is it me well just go and buy that I I did not you them listen to the man he seems very insistent obviously he's quite agitated he's got a knife hello Dave I read uh, Supreme Blue Rose do you have to pronounce the colon? Is it mandatory? No, but it helps express the glands. <laughs> Tell us about Supreme Blue Rose. Um, so, sort of potted history, Supreme was uh, Image Comics' attempt to get a Superman. Was this um, the thing that we both read in like 2006 we read the second version of it right we read Alan Moore's ridiculous afterwards version so originally it was Rob Liefeld another uh, another Liefeld project that has been successfully rehabilitated so it's another one of those so Image were back when Image were far more like a traditional publisher uh, they were going to create their own superhero universe and they created mm. bits of that um, Supreme was the Superman analogue in a slightly known fashion. Was it JMS the one we read? No, it was Alan Moore. What was the thing JMS did? Supreme. Squadron Supreme. Uh. Um, but Rob Liefeld got fired from Image um, for being Rob Liefeld mm. uh, and sold the rights to them in order to fund other things. Alan Moore came in and did a weird revisionist take. And now Warren Ellis is doing a revisionist take on a revisionist take of a revisionist take. Christ on a moped. It's great. Of course it is. Everyone loves it. The art's gorgeous. I don't like it, but it's incredibly well done. Everyone's raving about it. I I feel like the only person in comics that hasn't read it. I I love the art. Um, That's Tula Lote doing all the art and all the colouring. She is very good. And she's doing another comic with Warren Ellis soon. Um, Oh, that looks exciting. I can't remember what it's called. What's it called? It's, it was only his newsletter, which if you don't subscribe to, you should subscribe to. Well, we'll talk about it at the end when we've, mm. um, you know, disappeared and read the notes for five minutes. Um, but basically, it's it's um, it's a series of people who are analogous to characters in Superman. Um, you have Darius Dax, who is definitely not Lex Luthor, um, turn up and, and ask a journalist who is definitely not Lois Lane. Um, to go and investigate the disappear like a uh, crash in this town and weird things that are going on around it, and it gradually mm-hmm. cut, t- turns out that the this supreme has vanished. No one can quite remember him, but the, there's something wrong with time. Um, this is Warren Ellis writing a giant pile of sapphire and steel and Doctor Who fan fiction. Why wasn't I told? It's. Um, it's, it's pretty tremendous. It's continually intercut with um, with this completely incomprehensible serial called Professor Knight, which it claims has been in continuous production for over 200 years. Um, <laughs> and Professor Knight is one of the sort of 
Justice League equivalent of, of um, like a Doctor Strange figure, or well, that's not Justice yeah, League. in that sort of in that sort of vein. And there's Doc Rocket, who is similar to the Flash, and they're all sort of gradually turning up. It's hard to talk about in detail because fucked if I understand all of it. Um, but well, the central conceit is easy to understand, but also a huge spoiler. So. I don't don't necessarily want to go into that. Again, recent enough that probably not fair. Yeah, this it, was this was hugely fated last year when it debuted. Yeah, it was, and I don't. I, mean, I think um, when it was when it started to become obvious that it was going to be obtuse and difficult, and Warren was frotting himself to the notions of writing Sapphire and Steel, which he totally should. I mean, he's doing a Bond spin-off comic now. Warren Ellis on an HBO-backed Sapphire and Steel reboot. Make it happen, people. The thing that um, the thing that scares me about him doing a a Bond comic is that it just immediately calls my mind back to that opening uh, page of Desolation Jones, where you've got a <laughs> gently demented MI6 agent being told by a superior, "Put it this way, Mister Jones, James Bond never pissed himself." I have a feeling that come December that will no longer be the case. You haven't read the Fleming novels, have you? No. But it's based, so it's based more around those than yeah. the French world. So, on the page, The Man with the Golden Gun is... Uh, no, not The Man with... That's the one with the assassin, isn't it? Scaramanga. Yes. Yeah, so... I might be about to horribly confuse that with Live and Let Die, but either way... They're both really naff movies. Um, I think oh, it's Golden Gun's pretty good. It's um, that's incredibly campy, and the thing I'm thinking, of, at least on the page, is this grotty, reasonably trade crafty attempt to hunt down and brutally murder a mercenary. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a lot more like that. I, I mean, it'll be Warren Ellis. There'll be touches. He likes doing weird old spooks, and he'll be constrained by the genre. They've got the rights to do the writing as Ian Fleming thing that what's it, that Sebastian Fox has been doing with Devil May Cry a and the other one. A few people have been doing it. Devil May Cry was terrible. I didn't read any of them. It was terrible. Um, um, the guy who did... He really nailed the tone, but it wasn't a good Bond. Right. Sorry, I, I'll start again. He, really, he did a really good job of being Ian Fleming, but a really bad job of structuring a Bond novel. I think, it'll, I, I think it will be like that. I'm, I'm quite excited to see where it goes. All we've got so far is a cover image, isn't it? Or a single full page. I don't know if it's a cover yeah, or a cover, just or a cover full image. Page, but... I'm not familiar with the artist. No. Um, but it was in... Uh, wait and see. I'm not a huge Bond fan, but Warren Ellis has done Broken Down Old Spook so well in the past that I'd quite like to see what he does with the most famous Broken Down Old Spook. Yeah. It also feels like Desolation... I'm, I'm seeing Desolation Jones a lot at the moment. There's something tonally in Desolation Jones that I'm seeing popping up in a few places. There are obvious shades of it in both Injection and Trees. Um, Empty Zone, which I'll come to, feels a lot like it. There's... Maybe it's a cultural moment, I don't know, but... The thing... The, 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 the Injection premise of the world has become uninhabitable and only five people know. The kind of, someone killed the world, it's all too weird to live in now. Here it, here it is through the eyes of a few people that understand that. That kind of... Here's your horrifying dystopia, have a nice afternoon, fuck you vibe. Like, it's art answering culture, right? There's a moment of huge despondency at the moment around what we've built around our failure to act on social inequality and climate change. And 
yeah, I, I'm I'm feeling that vibe in a lot of places. A lot of near future sci-fi or post collapse. There's a lot of post collapse around at the moment, or not quite collapse, yeah. but rather than collapsing, collapse. shambling down. Yeah. I, I mean, Empty Zone feels like Desolation Jones in Snow Crash. So tell us about Empty Zone. Well, I sort of just described it as a bit like dropping Desolation Jones into something like Snow Crash, a kind of, did you say, car apocalypse? Is that the term we use? It's the term I've used. I'm pretty uh, sure I've seen it elsewhere. But the sort of semi-collapse or down-shambling of the world um, has happened. And there is this lady called Corrine who has a robot arm for reasons. We sort of... We see her have a nightmare in which it's torn off by a reanimated dead ex-lover. So clearly something pretty fucking awful happened to give her this robot arm. And the robot arm, along with the ambient level of weird neural tech, means that she can somewhat interface with information systems. So she's got a pseudo-superpower. It's clearly The thing she can do is clearly not ambient enough that people expect it. Right. Um, and we don't really know what's going on. She's some kind of bounty hunter or mercenary, I guess. She chases people down on commission for corporations or for shady crime syndicates. Again, it's not clear. What we see is her bumbling through this world, trying to cope with the fact that she's regulating her inability to sleep or cope with her life with a certain amount of substance abuse, um, pick up a job, taking some information from someone, getting interrupted by an angry robot, beating up the robot. That's pretty much the end of the issue, and then we cut to someone like crazy-ass sinister running experiments on corpses that may or may not be to do with animating the dead. And I'm going to guess it's going to a whole collective consciousness on the internet place, given that it's, there's an assonance with her nightmares. Might be wrong about that. The art's gorgeous. It's a bit like some of like a more colour palette constrained and more painty version of some of Williams' work on Desolation Jones. Well, specifically, it, it looks like the hallucinations that Desolation Jones has. Right. The whole thing kind of feels like that. In a sort of scratchy... Um, I think I described it on Twitter a couple of days ago as a glorious scrapyard fuck-up. And it really is. It's this kind of... The, 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 the Korean's robotic arm is like a, a horrifying re-implementation of a bicycle chain. It feels like the entire world has been put together from high-tech scrap. Everything's just held in check. The, your, house, your house is voice controlled, but it's falling apart. The, like, that, well, you know, Blade runner about it almost? The sort of Star Wars Blade Runner idea of a one universe. Yeah, it's... I don't want to over-rhapsodize the first issue because there is stuff wrong with it. It's, it's a bit on the nose in places. Um, but it's got that feeling that I'm picking up in a lot of places. I, I, maybe, maybe this is maybe a sort of a post-collapse, near-future tech dystopian, glorious bastard protagonist thing is 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 current genre's version of the 1922 thing of suddenly a whole bunch of things that seem disparately very similar explode because at that time, accidentally synchronously. Art was answering culture. That's a very bad explanation. Zeitgeist. But, just say zeitgeist. Say zeitgeist. Kinda, but it's it's more. You get the same thing expressed multiple ways. That's that's not far off. Yeah, I, I, I just I'm just fascinated by the fact that seemingly coming from nowhere, you can get these weird little trends in attempts to answer what a culture is doing. Um, and so it's also in Starve, which I guess we'll talk about. You didn't like it. I semi-liked it, but mostly didn't like it. 
it, that's uh, also a post-collapse piece. Yeah, I I thought it, I thought the exposition needed to set up the world and start was clumsy. So basically, the idea is there's a famous TV chef. He's uh, beloved of everyone somehow. Disappeared. Um, is living a life somewhere in Thailand or similar, just sort of getting by, enjoying himself, and then a producer turns up to drag him back to finish his contract. Well, it's like Anthony Bourdain injected into the beginning of Skyfall. Yeah, that's not far off. But it's just, it's the, the exposition is really, really clumsy. It's derivative as well. It's also the beginning of Transmet. Yeah. And a lot of these worlds are like the grotty Loba. So... I've been trying to express this. It's I know I'm obsessed with Warren Ellis, but the world in Transmet has been poisoned by the insurgence of multiple forms of technology. But the colours are lurid, and it's fundamentally hopeful. When he's not fighting the corrupt political system, Spider is basically wide-eyed at how beautifully weird this shit is. Yeah. And if you take a world that's been overexposed to technology, that's rotted it a bit, that's kind of accelerated a sort of pre-singularity, a constant grind of nigh-singularity stuff that no one can quite cope with going on around them. If you corporatize that and extract the joy, you get these sort of worlds. Yes. I mean, that wasn't really my main problem with Star Wars. It felt derivative, and yes, the transmit was something I thought of at the time. It's got very much that well, the thing down, where from you the, can... down from the mountain for one last hurrah feeling to it. And then the thing where it clumsily explains that, yes, you airports are different now because if you, you can just pay for exactly as much hassle as you want to avoid at security. Yeah, and it was just it was just clumsy. It just felt clumsy. I mean, I would do that if they offered it, but yeah. Yeah, but you'd never be allowed because you've got a knife... Yeah, you'd find things a lot easier if you just stopped waving that knife around. Um, it's also also with with Starvit, a lot of the stuff they were doing. It's, it was posed as though it was transgressive, and it didn't feel particularly it transgressive. The guy says "fuck" a lot. Big whoop. Yeah, well, he's a chef. We've both worked in kitchens, yeah. um, and he's he's commanded to cook dog. We've both worked in kitchens. Yeah. It's that does not represent any of my previous employers. I'm reasonably certain it probably doesn't represent any of mine. But northeast, so you can't be sure. Well, hey. Yeah. Um. Once you try whip it. Stringy. I would imagine. No, Starve is Starve's a funny one. It. No one's likable. I think it wants the main character. I can't remember his name even to be a. Let's just call him Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, like gangly Bourdain. I think is he is he meant to be Asian or is just the face is so badly drawn that you can't tell? I can't tell. Everything's in this sort of perpetual half light. That means you can't really tell what people look like. He's got manga hair. I, th- I think it's just that he's got manga hair and bad lighting. But at one point they have to explain that he's in his fifties because mm. you can't really tell. Yeah. And yeah, so dystopia future Bourdain goes on this rant at the very end where he's dumped into this arena where they've taken a bunch of his shit away from him and, you know, life sucks. And he's now got to participate in this grotesque glory of the 1% hyper-capitalist cooking show. Again, it's, it's quite on the nose. It's, it's a 15-year-old's engagement with anti-capitalism, basically. Um, which is fine. There's a lot of place for that. and it, It's not that this isn't fun, but... 
he, he goes on this kind of fuck you rant about how he's going to do this and he's going to take everyone to the cleaners and play by his own terms and you just the last few frames or panels are, are him just stuffing raw dog flesh into his mouth and chewing and spitting and it's supposed to be this glorious yeah there's this, this, this moment of the ascendancy of the triumphal bastard it just doesn't land it's a hero moment for a character you don't like and you don't understand why you are following him yeah, and because it's so explainy, you kind of, I don't know, there's not much development time. I don't know why he's the main character of this story. I would want to have some notion of that by the end of the first issue. But anyway, there's, there's so many good things that we don't really need to dwell on stuff we didn't like. I do think that staff has potential. Yeah, so I've, I've just, like, royally had a go oh. at it, but I um, actually... I'll read it again when the trade comes out, but it from one issue it didn't really land for me. It does it does have some there are some great moments in the art. The city visualizations, I think, do a better job of decay and pressure um, than than some of the stuff in Empty Zone. So I'm looking at um, what am I looking I just pulled it up. I'm looking at page, the third page actually. And um, there's that CRW Nevinson uh, painting of New York, uh, New York Solar Solar City, which is a proto-cubist, or sorry, vorticist, um, controlled color palette view of a train track into New York as it disappears yes. into abstraction. And it echoes the vertiginous feel of that, but in a kind of spiky, shaded, sort of nebulously East Asian way. That There are some really nice visual moments. And the bit at the end where he's, like, chewing on the dog... It's looking like po- it's poster iconography. It's here is there's this halo of light around him, but it's grotty and it's horrible. Um, it's sort of un- it's shot from beneath as well, drawn from beneath as, yeah. as though he's this colossus. But then then the text on it. But I won't play the game they want me to play. This is my fucking show. I'm going to do my eight episodes and burn this whole place to the ground. Watch. It, it's got the rhythm, but it's kind of adolescent. I think that's fair. Mind you, the panel with the dog's head on the platter is a glory. It does have really good sub-panel placement. So the thing it does in all, on almost every page is throw up a big background image and show inset panels over the top of it. And I'm a fucking sucker for that. Yeah. I don't... It's not that I think the art's even bad. It's just that I, I can't tell what it's trying to show sometimes. I mean, there are uh, a couple of points where the main character looks like Admiral Akbar. <laughs> yeah, that that just shouldn't be that easy. And oh god, there's some really on the nose tiger imagery now that I'm flipping back through it. And is he meant to be gay? There's yes. this thing about him leaving his wife, and they, they mention yes, coming out, but it's not really gone into. And I, I kind of like that it's not really gone into actually. But also, I want to try his weird cocktail recipe. It sounds like bullshit. Oh, it sounds like a bad Bloody Mary. And they draw the way they draw the gherkin makes it really look like a sex toy. But that's that's a separate problem. Um, I don't know. It's necessarily really a problem. It does look kind of like a sex toy. I would I would cautiously suggest reading Starve because it's not like Image Digital is not expensive. Image Signals aren't expensive. Pick up the first one, see if you like it. Yeah, it didn't land. It didn't land for me for precisely the same reasons you said. But, um, do you know what did? Uh, Rumble. Rumble. Oh, this just um, sounds like all the fun. 
But so it's, I couldn't tell, right? Is this is this first issue or is it trade? I've or? just I've just got the trade. So right. I wanted to read this as singles, but by the time I uh, got to my local comic shop, the first issue was gone. So I waited for the trade. Um, ancient ancient uh, scarecrow god wanders into a bar and starts a fight. You rumble. Yeah, I say rumble, if you will. Basically, it's a small town with a whole bunch of ancient gods fighting over it. Um, this sort of uh, Prometheus-esque character. like He's part Prometheus, part Thor. Which god is he? Uh, he's not a real one. Uh-huh. There's, there's plenty of that shit in like, Babylonian and Sumerian mythology. You could have, yeah. you could have picked one. It could, be from, it could be from something like that, but I wasn't familiar. Um, essentially, he, he frees humanity and his soul is cast down and bound to a rock for eternity because of this and eventually he gets free and is uh, bound into the body of a scarecrow at which point he finds a sword and goes off to kill people um, the various monsters that have done this Uh, and in doing so falls in with a couple of slackers who argue about whether or not to help him there are like dogma but good? kind of kind of I mean less faced and less desperate to make a point, I think. Yeah. More just fun. Um, the artwork's great and hyperkinetic. There's a bunch of great creature design in there. Um, it sort of feels like... The, the closest touchstone I can get to it is Big Trouble in Little China. It's a mishmash of mythology, ludicrous action, a whole bunch of stuff that really shouldn't work, and it does. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. Do you have it on digital or physical? physical copy nice book it's an image trade decent enough and cheap if you're interested um, they do surprisingly good print quality for their price point well I think I think the first volumes are lost mm. leaders basically trying to get people on but the um, yeah I would cautiously recommend it to people who like enjoying themselves if you don't like enjoying yourself don't, don't bother I don't think there are many people that like enjoying themselves listening to our podcast this is true. We are uh, pretty much designed for a uh, masochistic audience. Yeah, um, just by faced fuckers for faced fuckers. But I really like Rumble. I really did, and um, would recommend it to anyone who likes silly action. How does it stack against something like Six Gun Gorilla? It's much simpler. It doesn't have the. It doesn't have the um, level of complexity that Six Gun Gorilla does. Um, it really is a sort of straight-up action story, um, and I think that's pretty much what it's shooting for. So similar but different. Um, I read Autumn Lands by Kurt Busiek and Benjamin Dewey. That's the warrior bull creature thing, right? Sort of. There's a bunch of um, looks a little bit like Joe the Barbarian. A little bit. Very different art style. Uh, very much painted inks. Um, so there's, there's a city in the sky populated by humanoid talking animals, various different tribes broken down by species, um, and everything is held up by magic and magic is failing. Um, and the creatures on the ground are just waiting to get their hands on the, um, people in the sky who are, you know, last days of Rome, they're soft, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're mercantile and they're fairly useless in a fight. Um, and into this is thrust the great champion of their past Um, raised up by magic I assume yeah 
um, pulled into pulled into the future, and the great champion of their past is a future human, um, some sort of soldier filled with all sorts of battlefield like futuristic battlefield tech. Mm. So it plays on the indistinguishable from magic um, thing particularly well. Um, and he is, he is apparently the person that brought magic to their world and, and allowed it to be so effectively seems to have been the harbinger of the apocalypse for the human race yeah. um, uh, and so they, they pull him into the future and uh, he sort of tries to navigate it there's not much fish out of water he lands quickly he's mm-hmm. well written as a soldier and a pragmatist um, and then it sort of shifts into courtly drama power play between two factions and various people with different interests so Hmm. in that sort of Dune or Game of Thrones style where everyone has their own take on the intrigue and everyone's trying to come out ahead it confused me when Bronze Sun broke into that I always enjoy that though if it's well done oh yeah it's it's delightful again it's something beautiful artwork it's a reasonably straightforward story but Kurt Busiek is a writer I trust and there's going to be things layered into it there's plenty going on there's plenty of really good characterization. I again I think this is worth reading if it appeals from the sound of it it's a bit reductive to say that it's sci-fi fantasy black sad but um, but you just did so double down and tell me why it's the it's it's only that in the sense that it's the talking animal book that you shouldn't discard for being a talking animal book, and the slightly painty style, very different painty style, but oh, completely different. But I mean, it's Benjamin Dewey, who I don't think is really known for much serialized stuff, but his webcomic tragedy series is one of those things that you will have seen shared on the internet oh, a lot. Yeah, yeah. The sort of Victorian style ironized situations. Mm. It's good stuff. Both Tragedy Series and Autumn Lands. Um, and Autumn Lands is another image, number one, First Trade, just came out. I don't know if I want to pick it up. I just, uh... Something about it fails to strike a chord, but they are very cheap. I thought it... So, it's, it's by no means is it my favouritest thing mm. ever. But it was certainly well written enough that I will continue to read it for a while. Oh, have, we, have we covered anything off image? It's mostly the Spire, image, isn't it? Oh, is the Spire? Is that Boom? The Spire is, is on Boom. Pretty much everything else that we've liked has been Image. You've got a couple of aren't. So you've got the Art I've got the Coolbard stuff. Art of Flying, which I assume is oh, thingy Jonathan Cape or possibly HarperCollins. Fancy Books people. Yeah, it's, it's, from, fan, it's from Fancy Books. What um, is that? The Art of Flying. Yes. Um, the Art of Flying is a book by... Oh, gosh, what's his first Antonio. name? Antonio... Uh, that again? Altariba. Thank you. That's just a, lo- that was a lovely pronunciation. I, I think I might be getting it wrong. It's working for me. little frisson for you there. See you in a little twinkle. It's, um, it's, it's a really odd book, but a really good one. Um, I bought it digital. Don't. It's, it's much cheaper on Kindle, and I had to take a plane and I wanted to not have physical books to look around with me. Sensible decision at the time. The Kindle implementation, uh, the conversion has not been kind to it. The images and pages are very small, and it's a gorgeous... The the colour palette and the feel of it, it's quite a well-produced book. I handled it in gosh, and 
you want the physical book, trust me on this, if you're going to read it. But it's a... The, it's based on the life of... I, I'm not, I don't know if it's actually a true story thing or just a very well-realized concept, I can't remember. But the, the premise here is that the author's father, at the age of 93, I think, jumps out of a fifth-floor nursing home window and kills himself. And in an attempt to reconstruct his life and understand what was going on and why, the author pieces together basically his life and tells it in, in a sort of first person for his, for his father. And that there's some weird stuff to do with family memory and cultural memory and race memory and, and just cultural participation where it has this refrain of, I know this because I am my father, because something, something, DNA that's a bit hand-wavy. It doesn't really need that. Um, it could just have assumed the persona and carried on, but... It, it is sort of refracted through memory and knowingly simplified, and there are sort of little winks here and there. And what it, what it is, is a, effectively a first-person account of pretty much the entire 20th century history of Spain. Certainly the first half in quite a lot of detail. And um, that's some proper interesting shit. Uh, you've got the Civil War, you've got Franco, you've got the Second World War, you've got unification of various kind of bits of the country, the communists, the fascists. It starts with, it starts, it, and the cultural trajectory is, of the, of the character's life is broadly in line with, it, it's a neat match for the historical trajectory. So he starts in a very rural community, escapes it, moves somewhere more urban, and basically his geographic trajectory takes him to where a lot of the periphery of, not the big political events, he's not in the room for the decisions, but where the, the impact is felt of the political and historical events. It, it's got a lovely trajectory to it. So, as a child, he's resentfully helping his father plough fields and seeing walls get put up and boundaries get created. And this is a metaphor for obviously the. Well, it's an actual practical thing that happened. It's uh, unlike, not unlike the sort of UK include the in English, uh, what like seventeenth or eighteenth century field enclosures, things like that. that. That there's something a bit like that going on, which then plays into the political solidification and ossification of of boundaries and ideas and the emergence of the fascists and the communists as fighting factions. But, but through it all, there's, he, he's sort of haplessly wandering through history. He's a, he's a crack shot but gets himself... He spends a lot of time in the military. He's a crack shot but tries not to have to use a gun. He becomes a driver because he doesn't like the idea of killing people. He's, a, he's not a coward exactly, but he's a, he's a passenger through a lot of history. He, he wants his life to be nice and simple and okay and doesn't really want to get into the meat of it and therefore makes quite an interesting emotionally but not practically involved observer. And there's, there's this thing about teaching yourself agency through imagination. So he becomes a driver basically by imagining and visualizing what it's like to drive. And, and it, it's a long time before he ever gets into a car. And he, he talks about this, this as, as driving as flying. And there's this running refrain of, of learning to fly, being able to fly, which ties into his descent. The story is, is segmented out into his descent down the five floors as he tumbles to his death, which is also a type of flying. So there's the kind of flying is the imagined and then actualized exercise of some. Well, it, it's the actualization of an imagined exercise in this. It's, there's, a, there's a thing that you've concentrated on, and taking flight is actualizing your kind of dreams or at least imaginings in it. That's, that's one of the refrains and structures. There's a lot going on. It's it's soft and gentle and often painful. It's an interesting part of history because I know surprisingly little about 20th century Spain. 
gears, given that it's a country right next to us? I would say 80% of what I know about 20th century Spain comes from footnotes in things I've read about Guernica. And I don't even mean the event, I mean the painting. Yeah, mine, uh, similar, I think mine mostly comes from Orwell and other English writers who went over there to fight. And that even that is obviously a sliver mm. um, and an outsider's perspective. It's something that I would like to know more about. I, I would recommend this as a good introduction. It, it feels, I have no way of judging, but it feels honest. The, the way it portrays life under Franco for someone with even slightly left-leaning sensibilities, which is this return to a more pathological version of what he'd come from and tried to escape in his childhood. It's, it's a very emotionally immediate book. The art's very simple, but it's, it, it's sort of, I want to say sepia tintin, which isn't really fair, but it's not quite that Linclair thing, but it, it, it's very simple, but it's quite effective. There's a lot of little detail when there needs to be. And then these occasional wafts off into fancy are therefore all the more striking and the palette's quite controlled. It's, yeah, it's a very emotionally immediate book. Okay. The King in Yellow presumably is not. No. No, I'm not sure I understood it. So, it's, uh, this is I. J. Colbert's adaptation of Love the... Love that guy. Uh, Chambers... Uh, novel from the 1930s mm. is it? so it's not, it's post, it's, post Lovecraft well, it's a fiction. no pre pre um, it was actually published earlier than that okay. the King um, Lovecraft read The King of Yellow I think as he was starting out it was popular in the 20s but it predates it I believe possibly by quite some time Okay, so an influence on Lovecraft, um, recycled into the Lovecraft mythos, partly by Lovecraft, who drops in a few references here and there, and then the guy who did the revisionist kind of mythos take, it's not Ashton Smith, it's... One one of the post-Lovecraft mythos writers took a revisionist sort of knife to it and incorporated... um, changed the Haster stuff and the King and Yellow stuff and the Carcosa stuff. Uh, That's sort of not important. This is a fairly straight-up telling of some of the stories in The King in Yellow, with a few little flourishes. And what I like about Colbard's style here carries through into the prose, and this is also true of the Lovecraft adaptation, so... Did he, did he, did he, did Deadbeats, didn't he? Yes. So Deadbeats was the first of his pseudo-Lovecraft things I'd read. That was the... It's jazz musicians fight shoggoths, pretty much. Yeah. And racism. Yeah. It, it, yes. It's an original story, I think. Uh, it is, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's him and one of the chaps from the HP Podcraft oh, podcast. Yes, 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 yes. And he's, Chris Lackey. Yes. And he's clearly interested in the kind of the non bullshit, not overworked, basically the not chaosium version of the Mythos universe. Yeah, it's quite. Um, he's got a very simple art style. So I've read a few of his things recently. Well, so obviously I've read quite a lot in the past. He's done a lot of adaptations. Um, he had his first. Well, he did uh, Brass Sun, which is the thing I really love. Brass Sun was the two big two thousand AD book mm. last year. Before that, he had his own book as well called Celeste, mm. which is well, which I did liked. talk about in here. I did enjoy, and that's about a world where pretty much everyone has gone missing, mm. bar a few people. But I love I love the 
intricate simplicity of his style. It looks like it, it, you take a casual glance, it almost looks quite primary colours and quite basic. Mm. But there's lots of little details. He's expression, particularly. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in King Aeos. So I, I also started reading, I've not finished it, but I started reading his Case of Charles Dexter Ward adaptation. They're quite similar books. King and Yellow does a lot with expression and slight exaggerations of the human face. There's a, a cat's eye thing that he uses very frequently, mm. or sort of eye shape, where mm. you can't quite tell if something is alien or just yes. askance. Putting sort of a bit of light into people's eyes and then doing something odd with it. And because he, he keeps these very deliberately unreal, very cartoony colours, you it can be quite hard to tell quite how weird something's being, which is which is lovely. So, um, Charles Dexter Ward is your favourite Lovecraft story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the mountains... So there are, there are two long Lovecraft pieces, Dexter Ward and Mountains of Madness, and then there are lots of short stories. And I love some of the very short stories as well. Um, but the most consistently good piece for my money is probably the case of Charles Dexter Ward. The Mountains of Madness is... Stronger in a few ways, and it's more conventionally creepy. But I, I enjoy the pace of and the unfolding weirdness of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. I enjoy the way it sort of builds a world, and I like the fact that it's it's not necessarily the big ancient cosmology. It's it's a lot more everyday. It's fundamentally some shit's gone proper wrong in this small town. Yeah, and it's sort of how long has that actually been going on, and how has yeah. it got to this point? Um, but you feel that it's a, a worthwhile adaptation? Very much so. It's also, um, right now, it's dirty cheap on Kindle. Although the actual books are nice objects. They're, I've got a couple of them there. No, they're nice. They're self-made hero. I've yeah. published the adaptations. Yeah, good colour. Um, good colour reproduction. It's... Um, the King Yellow... It's a series of associated short stories that are effectively the, the idea of this play, The King in Yellow, will do things to you, probably drive you mad, but not only that, if you read it. And it's some stories about this brushing through the lives of some people. Um, and a couple of the characters are in common. It's partly a very straight-up adaptation, but something about that drawing of expression and something about his ability to... because the. His style, his style is not you know photorealistic. It's it's semi-abstracted. It's slightly cartoony, and so the level of slight oddity of the drawing of any one person is somewhat flexible, and that actually makes some of the exaggerations more unsettling. I initially thought this is a slightly cartoony style. Am I going to like it? But it really works for wrong-footing you. He seems to have an extraordinary rate of work as well. Dude does a lot. Brass Sun and Celeste, both large books, both came out last year. Brass Sun is fucking huge. Um, was it serialised? Was it 2008? It was, in it was serialised in 2000 AD, yeah. yeah. 2000 AD have... They seem to have really got good at writing things that work both as serial and work in the long haul. I'm actually starting to wonder if it wouldn't be worth a punt subscribing. I think digitally it would be pretty good. I don't know. Oh, I'll, but the retro experience of having the object. Might, saw, that might I've, be cool. I've got a house full of 2000 AD comics. I know exactly what it's like. Um, I haven't bought one a new one in a very long time, not since there was a 
Shaun of the Dead spin-off comic about 12 or 13 years ago. The two things right now that I'm considering physically subscribing to are 2000 AD and Delicious magazine. So what you're saying is that you contain multitudes. I think I'm seeing them at Ponce. That too. That too. Speaking of which, what do you think of the wine? Um, I think it is actually eating away at my larynx. I'm no, you sure. always sound like that. No, I don't always sound like this. No, you really do. This is what you sound like. Uh, well, I, 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 I can feel my larynx dissolving. It's tannic. It's less tannic than the thing I was going to bring. Which was presumably a burning tyre. <laughs> yes. It's a little Australian thing. It's, it's, um, it's called the Mixed Thing from Magpie, and it's got a delightfully fucking stupid label, which is some kind of bird god with a whip wearing suspenders. I don't know. Um, but it's one of the bloody stupid Barossa things where it's got about 10,000 grape varieties in it when really they could have got away with two. And it's, it's basically a Cabernet Franc Grenache with a bunch of other things in there as, as window dressing, but fucking hell the tannin. Shall we talk about the Image Expo briefly? As you know, I think we could. Announced. Because they, they, they have this thing where they announce things. Yes. So, we'll do a very, very quick rundown. Mm. Um, well, they, they've got some great stuff at the moment, and it sounds like there's some equally interesting stuff. They're just having a really good couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's generally true. Um, so, one of the first things that got announced was... Brian Lee O'Malley and Leslie Hung's Snot Girl. And I've got literally no idea what this is going to be. It's about someone with constant allergies who takes a pill and can become beautiful. That um, sounds crazy problematic. It sounds pretty weird. And that's... That, I'm, I'm, am I, I'm not wrong about this. This is Scott Pilgrim guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a shit show. Yeah. It's going to be quite odd. The guy who did Scott Pilgrim talking about someone becoming magically beautiful after being a bit gross is not something I want to trust. There's a um, comic from Steve Orlando called Virgil, which is about a gay cop in Jamaica being outed and going on a revenge-killing spree, as far as I can tell. That could be an absolute disaster, but the premise will have me buying the first issue. Yeah, that was kickstarted, so I think people have probably. Heartless by Warren Ellis and Tulalote. That's the musician returns to the family home, stood in the woods, and it turns out that she's done a weird. She's done something wrong. The woods don't want her back or they want to kill her. It's Warren Ellis and Tulalote. Yeah, I'm going to buy that. Of course, we're going to buy and read that. You're all going to buy it as well. Don't pretend you're not. Oh, it's weird when I talk to the audience. Greg Rooker, who's done quite a lot of crime drama, is doing I think he's good at it. He is good at it. He's doing something called Black Magic, which is a police procedural with crime within magic. I might read it. Could be alright. Could be alright. Jason Aaron, who has huge plaudits for Scalped, and Mm -hmm. less huge plaudits for something I like a lot more, which is his recent run on Thor. Um, teaming up with R.M. Guerra for a book called The Goddamned, which is uh, something inspired by the Bible. That's all we know. Gail Simone is finally going creator-owned and 
probably actually bloody time um which is uh, with a book called Crosswind in which a uh, uh, a hitman and a housewife swap lives like basically full on vice versa Freaky Friday their minds just end up in each other's bodies and they have to live each other's lives I don't know what to think of that the so I don't know what to think of that's it that's a standard four by sense of humour from that from that description it wasn't great but the um the one image that was shown was uh Basically, someone in a cocktail dress sat on the loose in a disgusting bathroom with a smoking gun lighting a cigarette. I think that could be good. I think that could be good. I'll take a look. Um, There's a Russian spy thriller from Anthony Johnson who did Coldest City and uh, The Fuse called Codename Babushka. That's something you're going to like, right? Even if I hate it, I'll buy it. Um, Sosperia has another new comic out with um, Ryan Kelly who I think is probably best known for doing three the Kieran Gillen Spartan comic from last year Um, it's called Cry Havoc and it has wolves in it you'll like it you'll like it you know you will I do like me some Sperria and Private Eye um, which is Brian K. Vaughan and Marcus Martin's digital-only comic is now getting a paper edition from Image. It's an interesting thing. It's, what, it's, what's happening with the rest of the big weird Link fantasy universe? That's just that just, that's just ongoing. On? That's just ongoing. Yeah. And then yeah, there's uh, this there's the LS Bond thing, which is not Image, but announced similarly. Or no, that's IDW. Um, is it really? Yeah, they've got the rights. How did they do that? Money. I don't think they had any. Did they spend it all on that? Possibly. Possibly. Um, so the big, the big um, shared image is called uh, Image Universe's Eight House. Eight House. Yeah. And you know the thing I'd completely forgotten. Arclight was the first one of those that I've seen. Mm. Um, well, we got very excited when they were announced about what six months ago. And they got announced at the same time as Island, and I yeah. think everyone got slightly confused. Um, but well, Comics and Cola has a really good blog post from back then about how exciting it all is and what's probably going to be in it and why we should all give a shit. She loves Brandon Graham. I love Brandon Graham. More people should love Brandon Graham. In um, a respectful, distant, consensual way. Yeah. I mean, he's massive as well, so he, he's terrifying. Um, there's a... Um, Brandon Graham reminded me that Tokyo Pop are coming back. Do we want that? Weren't they well, kind I don't, of dicks? I don't care because I don't really read manga, but they don't have the rights to all of the Japanese manga that they published. That reverted. They kept the rights to their insanely awfully contracted um, English language original manga. They, <laughs> they, they, they kept the rights to all of that, despite not publishing anything for years. Maybe someone will finally finish off Beat. I actually enjoyed that. Uh, but there's a, there's a bunch of people there that, that are doing reasonably well now, like Becky Cloonan had a series with them for a while. Um, there were people who got started there who won't touch them with a barge pole and they're willing to tell everyone how terrible their contracts were. Mm. 
So King City got published by Image, but Tokyo Pop took a massive cut mm-hmm. of the money from that. Um, but it basically was just Brown and Graham and Image have a good enough relationship that they just put it out there, even though no one was really mm-hmm. making money beyond Tokyo Pop. So the reaction to them coming back has not been great. They don't have the rights to all of the books that they were publishing at the time. There's no Fruits Basket, there's no Battle Royale coming from them. We well, remember how weird the sales reps were. They were peculiar. They were just kind of growy little twats in cheap suits who looked a bit like sad potatoes. That's broadly what sales reps are like. True. Some of them weren't too bad. Some of them did really know manga, but not many. Not most of the ones we had to deal with. No. Well, there were only a couple of Mostly it was just, would you like to put a big red branded spinner rack in your shop? Yes. Yes. Would you like to pay £100 for it? No. It's more than that, I think. Yeah, had a lot of books Yeah, we, but we, we got them to fill it with stock and eventually they took the money down. We, we, we sold a lot of their books. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. They're going to be focusing on original stuff. They might make it, I don't know, more... I missed the manga boom. I mean, I, I know it didn't go away when Tokyo Pop folded, but it did take a hit. Oh, it, it folded. Like in 2008, the base Tokyo Pop went... Um, the uh, the economy crashed and the manga boom was done. But it was really good for getting people into comics. They were accessible. Like the Tokyo Pop, particularly, was pocket money prices. It was crazy accessible. They, for all they were kind of asshats, they nailed the marketing for their demographic. I, I know you weren't well by it, and it was a bit of an overhead doing being in a comic shop at the time meant that you had to deal with an awful lot of very annoying teenagers. But I thought it was good for comics. I thought I thought the manga boom was a good thing. I don't think that it's not a good thing, but it... It, it was annoying. Die. So partly... I mean, there are other reasons it died. Piracy was huge. Yeah. Um, it just kind of faded. There's a lot more back on the shelves now. If you go into the shops now, there's tons oh, yeah. and stuff like Attack on Titan is sort of hitting, well, that's huge, hasn't it? hitting the same sort of levels of popularity as the big things were then. And people like Viz are starting to do very, very quick English translations to the extent that you can get... Um, digital subscriptions things like Shonen Jump that are a couple well, of days after the Japanese editions Viz also had quite a lot of better titles than so it's great now that there's been a, a little bit of recovery it has created a market space for Viz to start translating some stuff and a couple of other companies have stepped up and started God, what happened to those fucking yaoi guys the publisher that really loved us because I think we were selling like most of their UK stock or something I don't know I don't know you should have, you should have kept in touch digital something I don't know I can't remember what they were called, but like the, the, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're still peddling yaoi somewhere, wondering where you've gone, why no one's buying volume twenty-seven of Only the Ring Finger Knows. I never did relent and stock the spanking paddle. And on that bombshell, gentle listeners, knowing that we will never subject you to Roger's spanking paddle, I bid you good night. <laughs>